Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 217 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Friday, March 25th, 2022. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and we're not alone. We're not alone. We have a guest. <laughs> uh, a guest. So Mr. We, we could play mystery guest. Oh, good idea. No, because that's, I mean, no one gets to guess. That's true, and it'll probably be in the title we end up using anyway. Also true. <laughs> hey, so I'm super excited to be joined today by the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Matt Olson, head of the National Security Division at the at the U.S. Department of Justice. Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's uh, great to be here. It's great to be in Austin. It's a beautiful day and uh, really fun and to be here with you. Yeah, we're inside. <laughs> I can see the sunshine through the window. Well, I just had a million-dollar idea. We need an outdoor recording studio. The next dude should really get on that. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt will be the number one strategic priority. Um, that's okay. Uh, so, Matt, what, what brings you to Austin? Well, you know, you guys. Uh, I, uh, I have been in this job now for a little over four months at the Department of Justice, and this is actually my first opportunity to leave Washington, D.C. and get out and, and meet with some students. Uh, I'll be talking to some students later this afternoon as well. But, you know, honestly, it's it's part of the job for me, from my perspective, to get out, uh, talk with folks like you or uh, academics in the field, meet with students, uh, and sort of be a bit of an ambassador for the Justice Department and our national security work. That's fantastic. We're, we're really grateful. You've already spent time with students, and we'll do more of that. And we're, that's, that's sort of really, at the end of the day, around here, that's job one. And so thanks, thanks for being part of that. Um, it's it's great having you here because obviously the portfolio which we're going to talk about the portfolio you oversee is boring. Yeah, it's boring. It's yeah, nothing. It's nothing, going nothing, on. <laughs> nothing to see here. All is fun. It's, it's the it's the Justice Department Division of 18th Century Tort Law. <laughs> <laughs> it's really just like a, almost like a hodgepodge of everything we're into, and uh, and it seems like of late there's been like a little bit of interesting development across all these different areas, but even better. Um, as I said in front of our class yesterday, you've actually held like every job I would ever want, and you've done all these different things in the national security law realm. So um, I think it should be, be great for those who don't know you to kind of tell the story of Matt Olson and how did you – let's start with the question of when did you first start orienting towards national security as opposed to just being a regular old lawyer? Right, right, sure. I mean, well, I, when you – in that lead-up, I, I did think like the – I would like to switch places with you guys. If we could figure out a way for like me to like like a six month sort of we thing. If you want my job, yeah, I could exactly. come down here and have your job for we'll six months. We'll both come that back be horrified. Exactly. <laughs> prepare yeah. for faculty meeting. <laughs> exactly. And prepare for te- what's what's worth, Steve? Do you think uh, testifying or or being on a faculty uh, committee? It depends on who you're testifying before and which faculty committee. Yeah, that's right. They're probably, it's probably a watch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least yeah. you're testifying, you feel like it's you're you're accomplishing something. Faculty meetings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and I have testified once so far uh, in in January. I testified in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, um, look, I, I uh, like a lot of folks. I, I started in the national security field uh, after nine eleven. Uh, I I had been a prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office for uh, many years, like ten years. Um, I joined the Justice Department uh, in the Civil Rights Division uh, and spent a couple years there before going to the U.S. Attorney's Office. But it was it was after 9-11 that I had the opportunity to go work uh, at the FBI with this guy named Bob Mueller, uh, who had been... Uh, <laughs> heard of him. Heard of him. Uh, he, it's, it's our airport that has the Bob Mueller conference room, right? 
Is that right? I think it's his dad, but yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> anyway. I didn't know that. Um, so so uh, Mueller had been in the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, with me for a period of time. I had gotten to know him then before we went on to uh, other jobs, including that, at that point the FBI director. So I went over to the, to the Bureau as his special counsel in 2004 at a time when the FBI was really in the midst of its this fundamental transformation that you guys know very well and your audience knows very well from this you know law enforcement criminal justice or organized uh, um, uh, organization to a national security uh, counterterrorism intelligence organization. And so I was there at the beginning of, you know, with him helping with that transformation. How far along? So at that point, they'd had a couple of years of, of runway to, yeah. to make the plane lift off. When you showed up, how far along was that transformation? You know, it was interesting. It was even though there had been a few years uh, by that point after 9/11, it was it was a it was an issue that was front and center. In fact, during that time period is when the 9/11 Commission report came out in 2004, and, and up until even around that time, there was still serious consideration about whether or not the FBI needed to be broken up into a law enforcement organization and a intelligence organization, kind of an MI5 model. And, and it was really, I think, Mueller's leadership and advocacy um, and this sort of fundamentally compelling argument that having one organization that does both is actually the best way to be effective in protecting security and in protecting civil liberties and, and privacy. And, and he, that argument prevailed. And, but that was sort of a, that was a, a real issue at that time. And I would say, you know, in some ways, it, it, it's a transformation that's still uh, underway. I mean, it's largely been accomplished in terms of the leadership and the culture of the FBI, but this is a, you know, it, 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 it's a, I think it's an ongoing process. Well, it's an especially interesting issue once we pivot from an orientation towards international terrorism threats right. towards domestic terrorism right. threats. And I know we're going to come back to that in the conversation in a little bit. So we'll put a little marker down there to yeah. think about the, to, what, what are the implications once one makes that move, once one has that focus, the intelligence collection and analysis implications domestically. Correct. Um, but, okay, so you were at FBI for a while, and then what was next? Was it back to DOJ? Yeah, I went back to DOJ, and then uh, uh, during the time, actually, that I was at the FBI, there had started to be conversations around changing the Justice Department. The, there had been the, the observation uh, by the WMD Commission that, that the Department of Justice was the one a major department that hadn't changed at all uh, since 9-11. You know, DHS had been created, uh, the DNI had been created, but the Department of Justice still had sort of several different elements of the of the of the Justice Department focused on national security, but they were spread out and they weren't consolidated. But you had criminal division had the terrorism related prosecutions and espionage related prosecutions. I'd say, and then yep. where was OIPR, the Office of Intelligence Policy Review? Yeah, that was uh, in. As it turns out, that was in the Deputy Attorney General's office. Ah. So that and that doesn't, you know, at one point in time that may have been fine if it was a small group of lawyers attached to the to the Deputy Attorney General's office, but by 2005, it was you know probably 75 or more lawyers, uh, and it had become very operational. And so having that as part of a, a leadership office was wasn't really tenable. We should probably mention for folks who don't know, OIPR was where you found the lawyers who went in in presented cases to the, or applications to the FISC to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Uh, what other things would OIPR be involved in? You know, mainly the as you said, advocacy before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, representing. Uh, the intelligence community in, in those proceedings, but also a range of other uh, sort of advice uh, to the intelligence community about the authorities that 
they, they have to collect intelligence as well as uh, oversight of those authorities. So it's sort of a dual mission in some ways, uh, helping uh, obtain the authority, particularly ob- obtaining uh, FISA court orders, but also conducting oversight to make sure that those, you know, the, the, the execution of those orders is consistent with the law. So you show up in the, in the DAG's office and, hey, here's the York chart. Move some, <laughs> move some stuff around, Matt. Yeah, no problem at all, right? I mean, it's like like any reorganization. Um, it was it, it was a, it was a bit challenging. The criminal division. These were you know in some ways these were really important parts of the criminal division, the yeah. counterterrorism section. But um, yeah, we showed up. I was the career deputy. Uh, uh, Ken Weinstein was the first assistant attorney general, and uh, you know we consolidated these pieces: the espionage prosecutions, the terrorism counterterrorism prosecutions. And the, the Office of Intelligence Policy Review, which we reorganized and renamed the Office of Intelligence. And those were the three main components that we consolidated uh, under this new National Security Division. It was the first new division in the Justice Department in like 40 years. Probably since environmental, maybe? Maybe environmental. Yeah, I think that's right. That's, that, so that, that created a, a nice uh, uh, DOJ mirror image for all the other government reorg that was going on. But, but pretty quickly... Um, you, you found yourself uh, sidetracked in some other activity. I know when I think when we first met in person and, and worked a little bit together, I was working for Mark Martins and for Brad right. uh, for Brad on the uh, detention policy review while you were leading yeah. the, the Gitmo case-specific review around 2009. Yeah. Talk, talk about that experience. Yeah, so that's exactly, that's when we first met Bobby. I, I was... Uh, I had been at the National Security Division for a couple years, and then uh, there was the change in administration. President Obama was elected and issued the executive orders on the first day in office uh, to uh, review detention policy, the the issues you worked on, and and then to review all of the detainees at Guantanamo to determine what you know, category they should be in, what's the proper disposition. And that's a, a that was an interagency task force that I led. Um, I mean, I was, I, I, I don't think there were a lot of other people who were volunteering to do that job when I got it. So <laughs> <laughs> I was there um, and in the, in the Justice Department, I knew the Attorney General, Eric Holder. He had been the person who had hired me in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, so it was, it was a great opportunity for me, actually. It's worth emphasizing. So you, you, are, a, you are a career DOJ person and you've served in but in administrations of both parties in senior positions throughout time, um, what's that? Can you just comment on what what's it like when, from the outside political world perspective, you know, new team, old team sucks, new team's great, <laughs> right. um, and you and it changes. What's it like when Take you're the a, picture down? Yeah, exactly. What's it like <laughs> right. when you're a career person and uh, and you find like okay, there's there's a new set of people sort of layering in over the top, and there's all these outside perceptions right. that okay, now it's a whole different Justice Department. Right. Is that what it's really like? Yeah, that's not what it's really like. But it's a really important point. And I appreciate you raising it because, you know, yes, I was a career. In fact, I was the senior career person in the National Security Division during the transition. So as a consequence, I was the acting assistant attorney general for the few months before David Chris uh, was confirmed. Um, and that's a tradition across the Department of Justice, that the person who's the senior career person uh, serves in an acting leadership role. Um, it It is the case that you know, from a, that we don't look at the Justice Department, and ha- I can say this with you know complete confidence, having been there for you know eighteen plus years. Uh, you know, we don't look at it as a you know name the president Justice Department. It's not the Biden Justice Department, the Trump or Obama Justice Department. It's the Justice Department, and there's a very strong norm of independence and apolitical decision making. Uh, that and and the career workforce 
is, you know, really um, exalted in the Justice Department. And, and the people who in some ways keep the Justice Department working uh, through, you know, from administration to administration are is the career workforce, and in particular, senior folks in career positions who stay, you know, uh, many years and, and understand that sort of how the institution runs. And so um, there are changes, and that's important, too. It's important to say, you know, there's a new administration, there are going to be new policies, and that's healthy and, and positive. And look, I mean, there can be some tension. I remember uh, some of the initial meetings when the new team coming in, uh, some of them right out of, of like, having worked on uh, the transition before they got into government, they had some ideas. And in some cases, we had to kind of steer them a little bit to say, well, that's, you know, we've already taken a, a different position than that in several cases in court. Um, so we're not going to come in and just change that position overnight. But um, but then, as, again, so Unless we really want to. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but th- that's a healthy, I think, sort of back and forth when there's new political leadership, new attorney general, new deputy attorney general, and there's a career workforce. And, you know, there's accommodation between the two. I don't know if you can talk about this, but what you said just now makes me think about the sort of the those first couple of months of the Obama administration where there was there were some filing deadlines, I believe. March 13th was March the, 13th was was the famous yeah. date. Yeah. And this question uh, for folks who aren't uh, who aren't like steeped in the decades of Gitmo stuff <laughs> like we all are. Um, so th- there was a, all this speculation with the new new administration having obviously been very critical of the Bush administration's general approach to Guantanamo detention. Would the new administration in court uh, begin litigating very differently, taking very different positions about the scope and nature of the detention authority that the Bush administration had claimed? Um, And the big filing came before Judge Bates, I think it was. uh, Was it Hamlili? Was that the case? Mm -hmm. March 13th. Uh, Hamlili versus Obama, kind of say. That's right. uh, Because Obama was the president and was being sued in his official capacity, just just, just in case that matters. Good to clarify. And uh, (laughs) and, and the substantive uh, uh, scope of detention authority that was claimed in the documents was, I think, fairly described as pretty similar to what the prior administration had. Eventually. had eventually come around to you. And, that's, and, right. and that's a key point. It's a, a very that's fair, a fair point. point. It's a very fair point because it started off, you know, kind of sweeping and loose, and then it had gotten honed yes. by over the course of the years of the Bush administration. And then this this added, there's a little bit of uh, greater specificity on material support as a basis for tension had to be substantial. And there was uh, very different rhetoric around the relevance of the law of armed conflict for all of this. Right. Um, were you involved in any of the, can you talk about any of the um, the battling that was going on? Because that has to be one where at least some people were saying like, let's try, let's chart this whole different course. And other people saying, especially the career people, and I can easily imagine, especially the DOD people right. saying, hey, no, this is, <laughs> this, is, this is what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, but you're you're exactly right. And it's a long time ago, 2009, right? But March 13th, you guys remember the date yeah. like it's yesterday. I mean, so that filing uh, was the subject of a lot of back and forth, <laughs> of course. Uh, um, the issue of that I was particularly working on was uh, you know, looking at the detainees and whether or not any of them would be uh, continued to be held under the laws of war or whether that was a category that was going to be zero. And there were some people who were coming in thinking, well, they should either be transferred out or they should be prosecuted in federal court. And those should be the only two options. Um, and that, you know, that was kind of the part of the rhetoric around, you know, people on the outside in particular and, and in, in on the campaign. I, I think, 
And I think this is also healthy and, and appropriate that what turns out happening in national security in particular is that there's a fair amount of continuity from one administration to the next. There's a, you know, every administration, of course, has as its priority protecting the national security, protecting the country. And then there are, there are guardrails in terms of, you know, the laws and, and the Constitution, of course, and, and as well as sort of the rules and norms of how we make these decisions. And what I saw happen with, with respect to Guantanamo was there was a, the institutional inertia, um, and again, one could criticize this uh, still, like around uh, the detention authority, uh, continued detention under the laws of war, the continued use of the military commissions was very controversial, remained so. Um, but there was a fair amount of continuity, and I think a lot of folks coming into the administration saw some of the uh, national security imperatives of that continuity. Yeah, I feel like when uh, Obama gave his National Archives speech, that was sort of the, yeah. the, the moment that signaled, okay, there are certain aspects of this that are going to continue. He was very clear about that. Yeah. Um, kind of, I skipped over something before we got to that stage in your career. You, you'd had some involvement, I think, in the, the sort of the origin story of 702, yeah. Section 702. Yeah. Can you talk about what that was like? And, yeah. and like, what's, what's, what is this authority, this, surveil- this foreign intelligence surveillance authority? What's the value of it? I mean, a lot of listeners are going to know this well, but not everybody. Yeah, no, your audience is, you know, very sophisticated on these issues. And and I love talking about FISA and Section 702. Let me just say before I turn there that I just, uh, it just, I was just taken back to a moment on Gitmo on, with President Obama. And I don't know if I've ever really talked about this publicly, uh, but I, I was in a briefing in the Situation Room with him in April of 2009. And it was, it fell to me to, I, you know, he obviously had been briefed, pre-briefed before I told him this, but it was it was me telling him that we had done a preliminary review of the detainees and it was going to be very difficult to accomplish sort of the number of federal court prosecutions that some folks had thought were going to be on the table and that that number was going to be substantially smaller than, you know, we started with 240 detainees at the time and the number was going to be nowhere near that. You know, it was going to be much, much smaller and a few dozen was what I told him and I thought to myself at the time, you know, this is a this is kind of a harsh moment if you come in thinking you're going to be able to close Guantanamo very quickly to be able to say we're not going to just uh, prosecute them. Now, that was it. Turns out the least of the challenges. Right. <laughs> right. 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 You know, it wasn't like right. even if we could that we could all immediately move like them about all those the several States. dozen prosecutions. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, what, do, so, Kate, uh, did he just like look at you like? Who is this guy? Get him <laughs> yeah. out of here. <laughs> who, who put this guy in this job? Yeah. Uh, no, he was incredibly gracious. And, you know, he's a constitutional lawyer and he totally got it. Uh, and uh, so anyway, that's, but it was, it was that kind of reckoning sort of feeling at the time. Again, this is early on in the administration. Um, and it was sort of, these are some of the challenges that were going to continue to, you know, be present. And again, not just for President Obama, but to this day. No, that's right. And every, every every administration has always come into office and there's been something they were quite sure they were going to do that once right. you got in there and you saw how things really were from the inside, maybe it wasn't so easy. Yeah. Um, so on, on 702 right. and Collection Authority, so this this is, it's a, obviously a super long and complex story. We can't go into all the details. There's no time for it. But what, what do you think are the most important things based both on your experience with getting the authority into statute and then later on, you end up general counsel at NSA. Right. And so you really have a ringside seat for the actual implementation here. Talk to, talk to the audience about, you know, is this really that important? What, what yeah. value is, is the 702 program really supplying that wouldn't otherwise be available? Yeah, well, on that last question, that, that's the easiest. Uh, you know, the actually the importance, really uh, invaluable 
significance of Section 702 as an intelligence collection tool. It's, um, I saw it from NSA, and I saw it when I was later on. I was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, and the single most productive authority we had for counterterrorism or terrorism intelligence was Section 702, um, and it wasn't even close. Uh, so the value of it is without, you know... More, more effective than 12333? I think, yeah, I think so. Um, I think so. Uh, that, more that, focused. Because that, that wouldn't be obvious, I think, to the outsider. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, and twelve triple three is sort of this broad category, right? I mean, it's hard to sort of pin down sometimes what, what's twelve triple, you know, because it's really not really an authority in and of itself, right, as you know. But it, and, and so, but I, my, it, my sense, I, because it would, that what we were getting from Section 702 of FISA was typically tagged as such. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that may kind of skew my so perception. Better signal to noise ratio yeah, with yeah. 702 stuff yeah. than 12333, which yeah. is sort of everything else. Everything else as a backdrop, kind yeah. of default. Um, but, you know, taking a step back in terms of the story of 702, and I think someday there's certainly going to be a major motion picture. <laughs> this, I'm sure. So we could probably work on that together. That's right. You're um, here first. Right. When, when I started in the National Security Division in 2000, uh, 2006, it, it was already on the table that it was going to be necessary to look to reform FISA. Some of that was as a consequence of the president's surveillance program, which had been disclosed a year earlier in the New York Times, and the and the and the clear controversy that that generated, and the sense that there was going to have to be some uh, change in FISA, uh, not only because of that controversy, but also just because of the fact that FISA had been around since 1978. Uh, the sort of the definition that that defines its jurisdiction is based on certain technologies. It was sort of outdated in a lot of ways. And what we saw when we looked at OIPR at the time, the Office of Intelligence Policy, Policy Review that was getting FISAs, is that we were doing about half of our time or a significant portion of our, of our time uh, getting probable cause warrants effectively for non-U.S. persons overseas who didn't, you know, enjoy Fourth Amendment protection. And so that just had, and that was because of the way, the particular way that FISA had been written and how technology had changed in the meantime. Specifically, again, the, that's the motion yeah. picture. You're seeing right. now the grand scope. Exactly. Of, of no, the, this, the this script sells itself. <laughs> uh, so the, you have this. You have this phenomenon of, of, of basically internet-based communications making it possible to go to U.S. companies in theory right. and go to them and say, "Listen, it's, this is a non-U.S. person. It's a terrorism target. Um, they have an account on your service. Yes. Can, can we please monitor those communications? Um, something that in the old radio and wire world of the 1970s." just wasn't going to come up much, nothing like the same scale. So the, the, the potential burden of having to make the probable cause showing again and again and again and the selector showing again and again, it, it's just not what was originally envisioned. That's exactly right. And, and it, was, it was the change in technology, how communications uh, move, as well as sort of the advent of internet-based internet communications and the fact that many of these providers, the most significant providers in the world, were based in the United States. So um, as a as a result, right to 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 gain collection against somebody overseas who's not a U.S. person, we were that was using a U.S. based uh, internet provider, for example, or communications provider. We were getting probable cause warrants, and not yeah, we were convinced, and I think it was pretty clear that's not what FISA was initially intended to to cover. So, but then you have the okay. Now it gets really hard, right? So that's the problem. Can you go to Congress? Can you can you go? Can you start with the FISA court? Can the FISA court fix this itself? We, we took a run at that. Got about a month of that. <laughs> yeah, that didn't that that we tried. In fact, strategically, in some ways, while that was 
you know, that was a, uh, you know, a good faith effort. And, and it also was important in terms of the congressional debate to show right. that we had exhausted every way we could think of to obtain, you know, to fix this problem without asking for a congressional uh, modification, amendment to FISA. And then that led eventually, you know, to 2008 with the passage of the FISA Amendments Act in Section 702. And renewed a few times since then, but always with a, a shot clock on it, always with the sunset. So yep. here we are again, I think the end of December 31st, 2023 yep. is kind of the end unless it gets renewed in the meantime. And we've had enough experience over recent years to know that there's no guarantee on renewal on anything anymore, no matter what the topic, yep. from sequestration many years ago to, to the demise of Section 215 yep. uh, and, and other authorities that... Remember that? That really what weren't that? <laughs> really weren't the main subject of controversy. But they died anyways. Well, wait, wait, wait. 215 wasn't the main subject of controversy. I mean, 215 was a pretty large subject of controversy. When it was before the USA Freedom Act and all that changed it. Right. And, and the call metadata records, absolutely. But the underlying non-call data records, yeah. non-bulk right. Right. collection the 98 stuff. Right. No, no, the 98 yeah, stuff. The, the transition yeah. from 98 yeah. to 2001. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, let's talk about, you know, our... Are you concerned about whether Congress will do the right thing, And uh, in my opinion? And yeah. renew Wait, the question is whether he's concerned if Congress will do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, should we just stop there? <laughs> is that is that a good show title right there? <laughs> will Congress do the right thing? Let me, let me reframe that in Gold light 11. of the uh, friendly amendment. Um, uh, so we should always be concerned about whether Congress will do the right thing. Um, how, how are you looking at that issue? What sort of messages do people need to understand about what what needs to be maybe fixed? Are there things that you actually think should be fixed in route to renewal? Yeah. It, so you're right. That, and I like the fact that you used a, a basketball metaphor this time of year with the shot clock is right. ticking. Uh, uh, end of next year. Uh yeah, so that feels in some ways like a long ways away. It's almost two years, but it is. We are very focused now on this because of the importance, as I said earlier, of Section Seven Hundred Two uh, to the not just the FBI but the rest of the intelligence community. So, uh, what does that mean? It means that we are already starting to uh, put together briefings for me- members of congressional staff and, and members of Congress on 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 both the sort of. Uh, the value of Section 702 and the oversight mechanisms uh, that are in place. And, and yeah, I mean, I, the, these sunsets are challenging uh, for sure. And, and we do, and it tends to be the case that when you have a sunset, you go right up to the 11th hour um, as opposed to try to get this done earlier. And that poses, in and of itself, poses operational challenges because you have people almost literally, I mean, more figuratively, you know, with their hand on the plug at, you know, as, as the midnight hour approaches, ready to pull it out of the, out of the socket. So, and, and that's obviously operationally really hard for vast enterprises. When you've like, got to arrange continuing coverage yeah. if in, in those cases as well, it's resource consuming. Exactly. So um, I am, this is a priority for us. And I've said that, you know, I said that in my, con- my confirmation hearing, I, I've, I've talked about this publicly that uh, it, it is a top priority for us to ensure that we are able to renew Section 702. And what that means more sort of fundamentally is uh, that we have to prove to Congress and to the American people that that we, the, the government, the Justice Department, the intelligence community can be trusted with these very significant authorities and that we can be trusted to you know, exercise these authorities responsibly, uh, that the oversight mechanisms are effective, that they are both, 
you know, valuable in terms of intelligence collection, but they also protect privacy and civil liberties. And that's just a constant dynamic, uh, one that we're, you know, engaged in within the executive branch, you know, all, every day and then with Congress as well. The uh, periodic reports that come out through oversight mechanisms, right. periodic reports saying like, well, it turns out the Bureau has not followed this rule or yeah. there's, there's been this shortfall. Um, it, it's a pretty steady drip drip and, it, and it's it's tough because it erodes yeah. confidence. Yeah. Now, I think it's unrealistic to think there's not going to be problems. And part of what you want when you have – part of how you know you have a good oversight mechanism is you, you detect problems. And then you report them and we get to learn about them. Um, but, you know, should should we be concerned that, that for some reason – Maybe the Bureau in particular seems just not to be getting its house in order to comply with the strictures that do govern how it uses uh, its access to some of this material. Or is that or is that more a situation where, yes, there have been problems, but there truly are uh, sufficiently reliable fixes in place or on the way? So that's really a, that's a really hard question. Um, I, look, I think the first part of your question, Bobby, is yes, I think everybody should be concerned about how these – authorities are being exercised. I think that's just the nature of intelligence in a democracy. We have to be concerned as citizens. Congress needs to be concerned as our primary oversight mechanism that, you know, that these vast and, you know, intrusive authorities are exercised responsibly. And there, and I was concerned as a, when I was out of government, when I read the inspector general report about the accuracy of FISA applications, um, you know, and, and, and those were serious problems. And, and, and yet, what they also reflect, I think, is the, the back and forth, the, the dynamic that is always in play where, where you have oversight mechanisms, they, disc, they through audits, through uh, reviews, they find mistakes, they find problems. You know, they, they, those are disclosed through transparency mechanisms, through reports to Congress through, and public reports. And then, then steps are, you know, the FBI, the rest of the intelligence community, Justice Department, and Congress takes steps to address them. Like that dynamic is not going to go away. I'm not going to be here in a year with you guys saying everything's fixed. Yeah. There are no more there problems. Never be a problem. There'll never be another mistake. Um, but there are the, some of the mistakes that were disclosed about the FBI's FISA applications were were not just you know well this is just run of the mill. I, I don't. I wouldn't want folks thinking that that's the reaction within the bureau or within the Justice Department. I think there was. Those were taken very seriously. There's a number of recommendations from the inspector general, that, and those are being implemented. Um, so I, that, I do think that, that those, those, there's been a lot of work done to address those mistakes. Again, we need to prove that. Like I, me saying it here to you guys is one thing. We need to prove it. We need to have uh, data through audits, and there's new mechanisms within the Bureau to, to build up an, some audit capa- their audit capacity so that we can go to Congress um, whether it's on you know traditional Title I FISAs or on Section 702, and say, look, here's our record. Here's what we've done for the last year. Here, you know, here's where we yes, we made these mistakes uh, in 2020, 2021, but we're not making those mistakes anymore. Or if we are, here's what we're doing to fix them. And my hope is that you know with Congress that again, this is I'm optimistic about this, but that we can you know that there'll be support and they'll and they'll be convinced that that's that that's what's happened. But, you know, again, it's a politically difficult environment, and there's a lot of skepticism on both sides uh, of, of how intelligence authorities are being exercised. You know, we've been uh, 
talking about very important topics, and yet we've managed not yet to acknowledge. So that then the career progression, skip over a few things, working at Uber, we could have a whole sh- you know podcast, maybe even a Netflix show about that. Um, <laughs> just to be clear, your role at Uber came after all this stuff that gets dramatized. And yeah, was, I was not, I'm not a part character of the, in the new show. You were part of the, uh, <laughs> right. the, uh, the, the new way of doing things, uh, trust in... in Uber uh, 2.0. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but... So you're, you're running National Security Division now at a time of intense, it's always important, the work that's being done there. And, and there's always a counterterrorism and in, in now in domestic terrorism mission. But we should talk, because of what's happening in the world, we should talk about China some, and we should especially talk about Russia. We're living in a time where, though, though many of us were never out of this time fully, uh, the rest of the world has caught up to the idea that there are dangerous great powers out there that are reckless, that are in no way rule of law countries. Um, the Russian uh, aggression against Ukraine is is really jaw-dropping, even for those of us who've been cynical all along about this sort of thing. Um, can you talk about what role uh, your office plays in relation to how we are trying to respond with whole-of-government strategies to what Russia's doing? Yeah, and, and I... I think you're right to say that this has been, you know, those of us who've been in the security field, you both of you have been watching this sort of great power competition, as it's been called. But now, you know, now I think as we sit here today and seeing what's happening in Ukraine, uh, it really is astounding, incredibly concerning. And even talking about what we do in the National Security Division a little bit of humility as you think about our role in, you know, law enforcement and intelligence, that there are people, you know, who are, you know, uh, who are dying in Ukraine and who are fighting on the front lines of this conflict. Um, and I think, you know, that's always where my mind goes first when I think about this. But um, uh, when it comes to the Justice Department and, and Russia, uh, you know, I think one area that we and the National Security Division are focused is on cybersecurity. Uh, and uh, you know the White House, the president have, has the, the president has talked about the the risk and challenge of some sort of retaliatory cyber activity uh, by Russia in response to the you know very aggressive steps that the United States, along with our allies, have taken. Um, so we are very focused on uh, making sure, working with the FBI and the intelligence community, that we are uh, you know we we are. Uh, watching what's happening in this space, that we are making sure that the private sector and the government is as well prepared as possible to defend itself against uh, a very capable cyber adversary in Russia. And it was just yesterday, in fact, that the the Justice Department uh, unsealed two indictments out of the National Security Division. Uh, Both indictments were uh, handed down in, in last year. Uh, under seal, uh, and they were both, uh, as I said, unsealed yesterday. Uh, both indictments uh, charge uh, Russian nationals who are part of the Russian government with carrying out uh, cyber uh, illegal cyber activity targeting uh, U.S. and global uh, critical infrastructure. Um, and and this is part of an effort to really you know take advantage of this moment to to show this is what Russia does. Uh, this is what they're capable of. This is what their intentions are. Uh, that their reach is global, uh, and their and their ambitions are, you know, to be able to uh, have the capacity to impose costs on the United States through cyber. 
The scale of what was described there is pretty remarkable. I believe 135 countries touched by this, which bespeaks a certain ambition about having access and being able to hold at risk critical infrastructure, especially in the energy industry, right. against whomever they might need to coerce. Now, with us, it's maybe more of a, you know, it's more of a deterrence sort of thing. But you think about on, on a list of 135 countries where they might be able to be in a position to cause trouble in this way, a lot of that's uh, more likely, I think, to be used for leverage and to say, listen, you need to, you, you need to vote a certain way, you need to do a certain thing. So it, it's, it's a great illustration of the scale of, of the malicious cyber activity that the Russians engage in. Um, are we likely to see the Justice Department acquiring a bunch of oligarch yachts and parking <laughs> them in the Potomac as like a and party where, where, bar? Where do we bid on them? <laughs> exactly. Can, can we have some kind of offsite? What would you do with a $300 million yacht? I mean, what would, would you even, yeah, yeah, I guess that's right. Throw the world's biggest party? I don't know. Um, sell, it, sell it and retire. Yeah. yeah I, I, are, there, right. are there any things going on? So I mean, yeah. there's... There's sort of the sanctions enforcement dimension, which you guys have always been uh, deeply involved in, but it used to not get the headlines so much. Now I, I gather there's a bit of reorganization around that in, in a sort of a refreshed and enhanced sense of purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the attorney general announced earlier this month that uh, the Justice Department was standing up a task force. Uh, uh, named Klepto Capture Task Force, if you like that it's name. Good, yeah. Task like Force a, Klepto Capture, TFKC. It sounds like the, the name acronym. of some new Bitcoin type, you know, <laughs> cryptocurrency. Right. Um, but it, 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 is a, uh, it is a very concerted and serious effort to uh, identify the assets of sanctioned Russian oligarchs who, uh, who are, uh, in, you know, in some ways supporting uh, the Russian regime and enabling uh, Putin's aggression in Ukraine and elsewhere. And one of the ways that we can impose costs on Russia is to, you know, broadly speaking, is to isolate it economically. And, and really, we've seen this incredibly, um, you know, broad and really unprecedented effort to to do that, to hold, uh, to impose costs on Russia and to isolate it economically. Uh, for our part in the National Security Division, we are the experts in, as you said, Bobby, sanctions enforcement and, and export enforcement. So we are part of this task force, and, and our role is to, uh, when appropriate, um, we investigate and, when appropriate, bring criminal charges against individual, against the oligarchs themselves or against those who enable them by engaging in uh, illegal transactions uh, with sanctioned individuals. And many of these oligarchs are subject to U.S. sanctions. Uh, but bringing um, the resources to bear on this problem by creating this task force, uh, by shining a light on it and publicizing it, uh, and uh, is I think a you know again a, a, it's one way that the Justice Department can support this broader effort to impose costs. It's a it's a really obviously worthy topic. You know you, you emphasize it. It's about concentrating resources. You guys only have so many resources. You've got so many tier one priorities right. and things pulling at your attention. This obviously really surged to the fore and rightly so. Another one that had a good example there that I saw is, is the work that's being done to deal with the uh, what I would describe as a different form of aggression. This is repressive aggression, especially by, by the, the, the Chinese Communist Party trying to silence people, even within the United States, and trying to influence people. In, in highly coercive ways uh, to suit their interests. Can you talk about the, the recent announcement? I think there were five uh, five cases? Three cases. Three cases, okay. Announced last week, yeah. Um, yes, no, I, this was something that when I got into this job 
at the end of last year, I was really struck by the the number of cases and investigations that that we have uh, involving you know what we what we term transnational repression. In other words, yes, efforts by nation states uh, to cross borders, come into the United States, and to harass, intimidate, suppress uh, expression and dissidents uh, in in the United States. And, and in particular, the PRC. No country does this to the level and, and, and an extent as the, as, the, as the Chinese government. And um, so last week, we announced three cases, all out of the Eastern District of New York, um, uh, that the FBI has been investigating. And, and we uh, indicted uh, th- uh, three different cases, all similar in that they involve uh, the, inv- the, the efforts of the PRC government and their agents to intimidate people in the United States, including in one case, uh, a, an individual who is uh, running for Congress in New York, um, who had been a, uh, a protester at Tiananmen Square and, 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 and had become a naturalized U.S. citizen. So uh, it really was shocking to see this. And, and again, it, it's, pri- it, it's principally, I would say, the PRC, but it's not only the, the Chinese government. We have cases involving uh, Egypt, Iran. We brought a case uh, against uh, four uh, Belarusian officials who uh, who forced a plane to land yeah. in uh, Belarus in order to uh, detain a journalist dissident uh, who's still being detained. So these are these are cases that are. Um, you know they're illegal. What these actions in the United States, but they're also you know so counter to our values yeah. of freedom of expression. Well, it's a, it's a it's an important new area, and people do need to start thinking about it as a category of transnational repression. It's got information dimensions too, but yes. but there is this uh, crime dimension, the the Belarusian air piracy dimension. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is it's a really important initiative to spotlight and 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 try to stop what the Chinese are doing. Uh, it also shows that you guys are in fact still engaged in dealing with Chinese malicious activity. Um, there's been some criticism about what, what to some extent sounds like a, just a rebranding or a, a redescription of how the department's allocating its efforts relating to Chinese es- commercial espionage, repression, et cetera. Can you just talk about and kind of answer the critics who say, ah, some, for, for reasons unknown, you guys have gone soft on China. Um, it doesn't seem that way, but but I get it how somebody who just looks at the headlines thinks, right. well, there was a China initiative, now there's not. Right. So can you explain it? Yeah, and, I, and I've had a chance to talk a, a fair amount about this, um, both publicly, I, I gave a speech about it a couple weeks ago, and I've had a lot of, when I got into the office, into this job in, in November, um, the China initiative was something that, you know, was controversial, and uh, I started to take a look at it. At, at the Attorney General asked me to review the China Initiative. I met with the FBI and, and the intelligence community because the first thing that you would want to do and what I knew I wanted to do was understand the threat. And that, that's something I learned when I was at the National Counterterrorism Center. You, know, you have to start with, okay, what are, what's the threat we're facing? And the threat is never static. It's dynamic. You've got to be agile enough to respond to the threat as it evolves. Um, and... And, and, yeah, we were very closely lashed up with the FBI and the intelligence community in thinking about how should we orient the Department of Justice and the, and the prosecutors in, in the National Security Division, our resources against China. And the bottom line is we are very focused on the threat from China, uh, clear-eyed about their efforts to uh, conduct espionage, to steal uh, our innovation, our trade secrets. 
to carry out acts of transnational repression. In fact, the DNI said, uh, and I totally agree with her, last week, or I think it was when at the Worldwide Threat uh, hearing, that you know, there's no country that engages in cyber espionage on the scale uh, that, and, and the persistence that China does. So we are very focused on that threat. What I, though, determined is that having a China initiative in, the li- in, in light of the, the, the range of nation states that were posing uh, you know, real challenges to us didn't make sense. And it, made more, it, it was a bit myopic when you think of, I mean, look what's happening with Russia right now, right? And I, that's an obvious point. But it's not just Russia either. It's Iran. It's North Korea. It's other countries. And the range of threats is certainly it's traditional espionage. It's cyber uh, cyber intrusions, it's transnational repression, um, it's stealing our, our, our internet intellectual property. And, and I didn't think it made sense to have a, a strategy that just called out one country, but rather we needed to have a strategy that looked at nation-state threats more broadly. And, you know, Bobby's taking a, a step back a bit. Having been at the National Security Division at its inception uh, 15 years ago, I, you know, I've seen really where the focus was really about al-Qaeda and counterterrorism you know, this is now sort of where we need to be focused. I mean, still, we have to, you know, certainly terrorism is still a priority, both international and domestic. But the biggest change in terms of level of effort required is the nation state threats. Right. And it's not a question of doing, well, we, we can do one or the other. So we used to do the one. Now we're going to do the other. Correct. It's we've got to do all of the above. Right. So I can almost hear the plea for more resources mm. for your office. Um, of course, terrorism is still a threat. The Islamic State is still out there. Al-Qaeda remnants, at least, are still out there. Can you talk about you know, all, all of us who've sort of had the entire uh, post-9-11 experience Early on, we all were highly aware that terrorism had been there and had in in international terrorism in particular hadn't been Al Qaeda in particular had not been f- sufficiently fully recognized by enough people. Right? Um, are we are we on a downswing that's consistent with yours in terms of the level of focus and attention? Are we are we right sized to the threat, or is there a risk that we just got tired and distracted by other things and we're we're not paying enough attention to? international terrorism. And we'll talk about domestic yeah. terrorism in a second. I mean, I do think about this a lot because it, it is the case that there may be a sense, you know, we are 20 years after 9-11. We talked about this yesterday. We, you know, we were talking to students and some of them were, if they were toddlers, maybe some yeah. not even born yeah. yet, right? Um, and uh, is this really sort of so far in the rearview mirror that it's not as, you know, much of a priority as it should be? I... I Look, I think what we have seen is a maturation of the effort around al-Qaeda and, and the sort of the evolution of our defenses, um, our intelligence collection in a way that it's, it's not as, uh, you know, there's not, a, there's not as maybe perhaps as much urgency around the work that's being done because it's in a, it's in a solid place and it's been effective over the years because of the amount of effort resources put into it let's face it a lot of you know time money uh and and energy put behind the counterterrorism effort on al-qaeda and it's largely been you know successful in preventing another obviously preventing another attack uh on the scale of 9-11 inside the united states so but i do worry that we get we could get complacent and it's something we talk about in the national security division i can tell you that the fbi is not complacent uh, particularly about the possibility of of a an individual or a small group of individuals in the United States inspired by uh, al-Qaeda or ISIS, um, that still is a very real threat, and we, we track those threats uh, on a daily basis. Um, so, um, 
I, I, but I, I think it's one. I think it's a good call out, Bobby, to say, you know, are we, all, are we always calibrating correctly here, um, and not sort of chasing, you know, the shiny object? Yeah. Well, there's the simultaneous uh, domestic dimension to all this, which sometimes right. has an international dimension. Yeah. And then, and of course, that spills over into lots of challenges there. And we talked about this at the top of the show here about how there's the the civil liberties implications get trickier once you turn the lens fully domestically. Um, you guys, I believe, have had a little bit of organizational innovation, nothing major, but right. as, a, as sort of a, a reflection of the seriousness of purpose on domestic terrorism, t- talk about what the, the counterterrorism folks have been doing organizationally in your office to reflect yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the recognition has been, and this goes back to last summer with the uh, the White House strategy on, on countering domestic terrorism and the work that the intelligence community did. You know, they... They uh, assessed that the the threat from domestic terrorism was elevated. Uh, the number of I was struck by this fact: the number of domestic violent extremists that the FBI is investigating has doubled in, in the past two years. Uh, so there's clearly uh, uh, an increase in the tempo and seriousness of the threat from domestic terrorism. So um, I thought it was important uh, to basically take our counterterrorism section, which has traditionally done domestic terrorism as well as international terrorism, but to create a, a unit within that within that section to focus just on domestic terrorism. Um, and one of the reasons to do that is resources to apply to this problem, uh, but it's also because of some of the unique challenges that, uh, that I think lawyers can help, uh, uh, you know, allay uh, in this area. And that is the, the, when you do turn the lens on, a, on purely domestic acts and you are trying to collect information about about individuals, uh, you are implicating serious civil liberties and privacy concerns and First Amendment concerns and that aren't necessarily present when it comes to international terrorism. So uh, there's, there's our role, kind of our traditional main justice role, is to, is to provide that kind of guidance to the field. I mean, these cases are being handled by FBI field offices, joint terrorism task forces around the country, and by U.S. attorney's offices around the country. We can help coordinate those cases, help ensure consistency in how they're handled, train and, and provide guidance to the field. And that's what I, I hope this, I expect this new unit to do. do you, I mean, do you think, you know, we've talked before about the, the difference between enforcement priorities and authorities, right? I right. mean, do you think there are gaps on the authority side when it comes to federal investigation of domestic terrorism? Or do you think that the statutes are there, it's just about finding the right personnel, putting them in the room together? You know, I've generally come to the view that the authorities are there and, and that, you know, to the extent there may, you know, the, the value of some sort of domestic terrorism statute has, uh, there's also some real downside right, to that. And right. so it's a bit of a, it's a bit just of a recognition of the, the challenges inherent in that kind of I, statute. I, mean, I think this is very much where we are too. Yeah. Um, or at least where we have been. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've talked about it that way. Yeah. There's, we don't, we don't like charges. The question's really a symbolic one. Is there, right. is there some lack of seriousness of purpose by failing to be able to say, look, it's section right. you know, 2339Z. <laughs> <laughs> you heard that here first. The right. domestic terrorism charge. Double Q. Yeah, exactly. And, and as you guys have been pointed out, like, so first of all, we, we've got domestic terrorism defined in statute. It's yes. not a separate charge. But, but many of the cases that use terrorism charges are domestic terrorism cases. There's a sentencing enhancement. We don't, yeah. we don't lack for seriousness of purpose. And we don't, I think, have a phenomenon of prosecutors and criminal investigators 
somehow conspicuously failing to use the rhetoric of domestic terrorism. I, right. My impression is certainly for many years now, under both administrations, um, law enforcement's been very clear in, in calling it what it is. Yeah. Now, uh, I know we're basically out of time, but we, we can't not talk about uh, how, how, how are the cases going with the January 6th cases. Yeah. We, we had an attempt in this country to, to violently disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, just an incredibly shameful episode, and tons of legal fallout with a, a wide spectrum of cases from extremely serious problem actors to people who were more in the, you know, sort of follow-on sort right. of um, extremely foolish Criminal people. trespass. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, are, are we seeing an array of cases being brought that are that are right-sized to the scale of what happened? And are they going well? It's hard to follow it all. Yeah, it, well, it is hard to follow it all because of the scale of it and, right. the, and the number of... Like 700 and yeah, some odd prosecutions? Yeah, more than 700 arrests, uh, more than 325 uh, felony arrests. Uh it just does, and and all being handled out of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office and, and the Washington Field Office of the FBI. But it's touched just about every U.S. Attorney's Office and every FBI yeah, field office. People came from all over. They came from all yeah. over, and very few people were arrested on January sixth. So they all went back home, and now they're all you know over time over the. I mean, in some ways, from that perspective, it's just over a year now. You know, that's that's a, an amazing amount of uh, of progress if you look at it just in terms of those yeah. numbers. And I think we're now seeing some of the more serious charges and serious uh, indictments uh, being handed down. My, my um, law school small group section mate. That's right. I don't know if you knew Stuart this. Rhodes. Stuart Rhodes. Yeah. Steve, yeah. You, you taught him everything he knows. <laughs> <laughs> we're, hey, we're, actually, I recall being on the same side of uh, um, the detention of U.S. citizens as enemy combatants. <laughs> um, but that's a that's a things come full circle. There you go. Um, but so Matt, on, on that though, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, the what's happening in court, I think, largely speaks for itself. Yeah. Um, are, are there lessons for either the Justice Department institutionally, or again, back to the question of like statutory, like, are is the law adequate to handle this kind of large scale, you know, attempted insurrection? Are there things we should be thinking about going forward? I mean, I know you know we we talk a lot about different kinds of reforms to prevent the next January 6th, reforming right. the Electoral Count Act, right. right, you know, reform, I mean, reforming the Insurrection Act, but from a from a sort of prosecutorial perspective. Boy, that's a, a really good question, Stephen. I have to say, as I sit here, I'm so close to it. You know, we are very involved in these cases yeah. at the National Security Division. We're partners with the U.S. Attorney's Office on a lot of the cases. Um, a lot of these charges require my approval um, within the Justice Department. Uh, it's it's one of those questions. I maybe I'll be better equipped yeah, to answer in yeah, a year or two. You yeah. know, like there's some distance <laughs> yeah. because I'm sure the answer. I, I would hate to say, oh no, everything's fine because I'm sure the answer. It, it, you know, my instinct is the answer is yes. There are some some things that we can do in term or we, that would be helpful in terms of investigative authorities or prosecutorial. Well, just, and, and, just, and it strikes me. I mean, right? You're you're in it. I'm not. It, it strikes me that a lot of the the bigger offenses, right, are date to some fairly older statutes, right? Um, right, And so there's oftentimes a mismatch between old statutes and, for example, modern Supreme Court vagueness doctrine, yes. right, or various. Yeah. And so, yeah. so not, not because there are gaps in the authorities so much as because we just haven't updated many of them. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, we're, the January 6th, there's not a playbook yeah. for something yeah. like that uh, happening. You know, just, yeah. it's unprecedented. Uh, I, so I, it is a great question. I, I, the, look, I think the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. are doing a great job keeping up and just sort of managing the, the resource challenge here. 
Um, the, like you said, the, the cases will speak for themselves. There have been a couple of jury. There's been a couple of trials. One jury, one bench trial. Both have revo- resulted in guilty verdicts. Um, but um, there, you know, these cases are going to be around for a while. We're gonna, and and I do. I guess I would harken back to also what the attorney general said in January. He talked about how the cases are being built. Um, you know, again, sort of in the traditional style of starting with some of the uh, more this straightforward offenses and and building up to conspiracy cases and more complex charges. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've been struck also, I, I can probably say more about this than you can. I, I've been struck by the the emergency appeals that have gone to the D.C. Circuit. Um, you know, the D.C. Circuit has some judges with some pretty different views right. um, on it. And and we're getting a whole bunch of unanimous decisions, even from pretty diverse panels. Yeah. Um, not all of which are in the government's favor, right? right, but, right. But, but both ways, yeah. right? The D.C. Circuit, I think, is pretty consciously speaking with one voice on most of these issues, which I think is also interesting. an interesting development. Yeah. This is a happy note to end on. I know we've reached the end of the time. Insurrection's Matt. a happy note to end on? <laughs> no, yeah. Speaking uh, of one a, voice. A unified and firm <laughs> response to insurrection. That's the happy note. Right. Uh, Matt, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you for, for being part really of it. Really quickly, do you have any, are, are any of your teams still alive in the NCAA tournament? I have, uh, you know, no. Um, I went to UVA. <laughs> I will, I, 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 people, I can't talk about 2019 and the yeah. national yes, championship yes, anymore. Yes, it's yes. 2022. Yeah. Um, my daughter went to Wisconsin. They were three mm. seed and got knocked yeah. out. So that's tough. I, I've had the worst bracket ever. I have <laughs> yeah. one team still alive, and it's Kansas, and I don't have them going to the Final Four. So okay, I, can, so I can literally yeah. get four more points in my bracket, well, and then I'm done. You know what? Let's do a reshuffle later, yeah. and let's let's redraft okay. for, yeah. for this. After round. the yeah. championship game, we'll, re- we'll reseed the field. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the NSL podcast way. Uh, awesome. All right, well, Matt Olson, Assistant Attorney General, National Security Division, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, and we look forward to having you back when you know, you can reflect a little more on the craziness that is your job today. Anytime. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to you both. All right, and we'll be back with a, a regular episode. I don't know. Sometime. Sometime. He's at Bobby <laughs> Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Uh, stay safe out there, especially you, Matt. Adios. <laughs>